You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us uh, on the last day of the Trinity Arts and Humanities Research Festival. Uh, and what a pleasure it is for me to introduce our next speaker, because uh, this is a festival, it's not a conference, we're not doing long introductions. And in Jane's case, that's just as well, because it would take some time if I were to go through her academic biography. Uh, so all I'm going to say about her is, is, first of all, that she has been someone who has really been inspirational as a research leader, uh, both in, in things such as chairing the Irish Research Council, but also in, as a former uh, director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, and in many, wearing many other hats too. But also, she's been inspirational to me as a historian who not only pushes new techniques and technologies in her work, uh, but also <coughs> has that fantastic ability to, to tune her interest and her scholarship to the political and ethical issues that matter today, regardless of what period she herself is writing on. Uh, and in the case of what she's going to talk about today, the question of Ireland's global networks and global purchase from everything from, from trade uh, and material culture right down to uh, the question of slavery is something that I think her current work speaks to in very necessary ways. So I'm absolutely thrilled that she's been able to make it back from India uh, in time to speak on the last day of the festival. And today she's going to ask the question, did Ireland have an empire? Jane, welcome. Thank you. So, so thank you, Eve. Thank you, colleagues. I appreciate it's a sunny day and it's lovely out there. And um, I, I got back from India late last night and it was coffee morning this morning. And I can't tell you how proud I am of Eve and the whole team here in the hub for what they've achieved this week. So let me begin by congratulating you guys on, it's just been amazing. So well done, uh, Eve and, and the team. So. Uh, the talk that I'm going to give you is very much based on my Ford lectures. So back in 2021, I was very privileged to be invited to give the Oxford Ford lectures. However, it was during the pandemic, during COVID. Uh, and so I actually gave most of them standing here in the, uh, uh, with no audience, just two film uh, uh, crew. And then the final two I gave at, at Ivy House. And Adrian O'Neill, who's with us today, was then our ambassador in London. And Adrian, it's just nice to be able to thank you again for facilitating that. Uh, and I think when I look back, actually it was a blessing in disguise. Because if I'd given those lectures in Oxford, maybe 50 people would have shown up. Over 200, no, over 20,000, not just not get carried away, over 20,000 people have downloaded those lectures on the RTE website. So ironically, we reach far wider audiences doing it this uh, way. Um, but uh, they're there uh, still if anybody wants to look at them. And the book on which, um, uh, uh, I mean, the book is very much based on the lectures, is about to come out. So um, I haven't seen a copy yet, but it, they, they're saying the end of this month, the end of October, uh, beginning of November. So hopefully you can join us uh, for the launch. Today I'm going to try and answer the question, did Ireland have an empire? I'm just sort of curious to take some soundings here. 
Raise your hand if you think Ireland did have an empire. Three and a half, four. Raise your hand if you think Ireland did not have an empire. Oh, and at the back, yeah. So, it, and, 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 and so most of you, you don't know or you're not sure. Not sure, don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that might be the right answer, uh, uh, but, but it's not straightforward. Uh, and I very much hope that over the course of the next 20, 25 minutes, uh, we can talk a little bit about that. But um, I want to start by saying something very obvious. Uh, uh, it's um, empires and imperial policies and practices really have uh, shaped uh, the history of the world for the last two millennia. It's really nation states that are the blips on the historical horizon. So by thinking about empire, I want people to think about it in a very, very, very broad way. Obviously, my work focuses very much uh, on Ireland, and it's, I suppose it's a timely moment to be talking about these things. Um, we're all very aware that Brexit dealt a body blow to uh, Anglo-Irish relations, um, but it also has fed into the rise of English nationalism, along with campaigns around Black Lives Matter and Roads Must Fall. I mean, it's forced us in Ireland to revisit uh, the history of empire, but to do so at a very significant moment in our own formation, because the nation state is, is, is uh, you know, this decade of commemorations. We're reflecting on what it means to be an independent sovereign country that can't escape from the legacy or the afterlife of empire uh, either. So I think it, it is a very important moment to have uh, these conversations. I try to do a number of things in the book um, and I'm going to sort of touch on them here. Uh, Ireland was England's oldest colony and as such it formed an integral part of first the English and later British imperial system. There's no escaping that and, and, and obviously I touch on that and I'll come back to that in a moment. The other big theme that I want to touch on here is the fact that Ireland is very much a laboratory for empire, uh, not just in the Atlantic world, but also uh, in Asia. The third uh, big theme is the Irish, both Catholics and Protestants, are very active imperialists, um, not just in the English slash British empire, but in all of the uh, uh, European empires. In fact, I would argue that they're trans-imperial. They piggyback uh, very effectively on the empires of uh, uh, the European powers. The final thing I just want to reflect on a little bit is what all of this means for Irishness and how engagement with empires uh, shaped the early modern world. And as we look at these uh, four sort of uh, big themes, then to reflect, did Ireland have an empire? And see if we can come up with an answer at the end. Um, I'm going to show you an image that, for me, actually encapsulates um, a, a, a lot of what I want to say about early modern uh, um, uh, Ireland. It was England's first colony and had been from the Middle Ages. And obviously, with the passage of time um, that brought with it conquest, colonisation, commercialisation, Ireland becomes ever more of a colony. Uh, if I was being very bold, I could say that Northern Ireland, uh, you know, Ireland was England's first colony, Northern Ireland could well be its last. I mean, we are still very much living in a colonial uh, uh, moment. 
And this engraving by Holler captures the essence of uh, colonization, uh, cultivation, commercialization, along with civility. This word civility um, also, we would call it anglicization today. It also captures the uh, tensions inherent uh, within it. So you see here Ireland, she's depicted um, as Hibernia. She's both a shepherdess and a huntress. You've got the bees around her head. They're symbols of industry and colonization. You've got the prized wolfhounds at her side. Now this feminization of Ireland was commonplace in both Irish and English language prose and poetry. And what I like about it, it invites us to reconsider the configurations of colony, kingdom and empire through the prism of gender and to look very closely at the role of women as colonists, as colonised, as brokers of cultural assimilation and as brokers of anglicisation. Uh, and this is something that my, uh, be, I've just been awarded, I'm very privileged to have been awarded an advanced uh, ERC, European Research Council grant. And actually that's, we'll do a lot of that uh, in the course of that ERC, looking at women uh, and empire. The other thing about this image is this contrast between the wild forests, which were no doubt replete uh, with uh, woodkern and wolves, and then you've got the more cultivated arable and pastoral lands with English varieties of sheep and cattle. And we know that those are English cattle because they've got horns. Uh, indigenous Irish cattle uh, didn't have uh, horns. It's redolent of those tensions bubbling uh, uh, below uh, uh, the surface because, of course, this was an era uh, where violence was endemic and most of the violence actually committed uh, by uh, uh, the state. Um, by focusing, though, on um, resistance to empire uh, uh, and gender, um, I, I think it allows us also to take a step back from the rather tired debate of whether Ireland was a kingdom or a colony, or some sort of hybrid uh, uh, combination of both. Um, also to step back from a very polarising master narrative, a political uh, master uh, narrative, and to look at this period um, uh, from a, a much more social, economic, environmental, cultural perspective. And this is where the work of somebody like Susan Flavin, and we'll see, hear a lot from Susan later, I think it really is a, a pioneering. But there's no escaping the fact that Ireland was a colony and, and an integral part of uh, the imperial system. So that was my first theme. My second then is how Ireland serves as a laboratory for empire and for imperial uh, rule, but also a re resistance to that rule. So it's not just a, a laboratory for imperial rule, it's also a laboratory for resistance to that rule. Uh, I'm very interested in how men uh, uh, and a few women from Ireland established uh, structures and formulated policies that were first implemented uh, in colonial Ireland and then transferred to other parts of the English Empire. I'm very interested in, in tools of empire and how they're trialled in Ireland and then um, adapted uh, 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 and used across the Anglophone uh, world. And when I say tools of empire, I mean policies like plantation or structures of governance, uh, uh, practices associated with Anglicisation especially the promotion of English culture, uh, language, religion, education and law. 
And finally, not knowledge gathering. Um, uh, the need to chart, to catalogue, to count, to draw, to map, to paint um, land and people and natural resources is uh, uh, something that we see not just in the early modern period, but of course um, across time. Now, I don't have time here to go into all of that. I'm just going to use one example. Um, and I, I, I want to focus on how ideas of cultural superiority uh, shaped in Ireland were then exported around the early modern English imperial world. And we need to be careful here because race, as we understand it today, uh, uh, really uh, uh, didn't exist in the early modern uh, period where the context was very different. Um, and we also have to be very careful about transferring across time pre-modern uh, notions of ethnic superiority and equating them with modern-day uh, racism. Uh, but there are some striking continuities, um, uh, 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 and, and it's these that I, I just want to draw your attention to. Because a discourse of civility and barbarism had long underpinned uh, English imperialism in Ireland. Uh, we see this very, very clearly uh, in the work of Gerald of Wales, uh, or Geraldus Cambrensis. Um, he was writing in the 12th century from a classical perspective, uh, and he consistently refers to the Irish as barbarous, as rude, uh, living themselves like beasts. Um, he argues that the geographical isolation of Ireland from the civilised nations ensures, and the quotes there, they learn nothing and practice nothing but the barbarism in which they were born and bred and which sticks to them like second nature. Cambrensis is a foundational text. Um, it becomes a bestseller uh, in the Middle Ages, but it's then given a whole new lease of life uh, in the early modern period because it's reprinted as part, in English, as part of Hollandshed's uh, uh, Chronicles. Um, and what it's basically doing is uh, denigrating everything Irish and promoting everything English. Uh, and of course, that then sticks. And what begins as an ideology of cultural difference soon turns into one of cultural superiority. Uh, I'm, a single example here is John Derrick, his image of Ireland uh, from 1581. He uses uh, these very, very graphic woodcuts along with prose to really denigrate uh, the Irish, um, brands them as animals, as subhuman, as grasshoppers and caterpillars, hogs and dogs. And again, you can see here the Irish man always covered in a big uh, uh, mantle. Uh, the wolves are in the background. Um, now these, if you want, ethnocentric ideas permeated uh, the uh, early modern Anglophone world, and we see them particularly again in the uh, Caribbean. However, probably the greatest exponent of all of cultural superiority during these years uh, was the uh, poet and planter Edmund Spencer, A View of the State of Ireland. It calls for the wholesale destruction of the Irish along with their culture, society and economy and invites England to enjoy a monopoly over the exercise of violence. And then having purged Ireland of its Irishness, uh, uh, Spencer it wants to colonise the country uh, with English settlers who are then going to be the ones who establish the political, economic and uh, social framework that was considered necessary for a civil and Protestant life. 
just as Cambrensis had become a foundational text, so do uh, so does uh, Spencer's uh, writing. Um, and it, it really influences policymakers from the 17th century right up into the uh, uh, 19th century, where it does feed in to a wider discourse of race and of othering, uh, particularly in Asia and in Africa. And you know some of these cartoons, which will be well known to, to many of you, illustrate uh, some of this othering. Uh, uh, See, on the left there, uh, you can see the Victorian uh, is regarded the Irish uh, Celt as a distinct race, represented uh, here as a chimpanzee. In the middle, um, it's a drawing entitled Imperial Problems, and an Irish terrorist is depicted uh, with a black monkey-like face alongside an African warrior. Uh, and then on the right, uh, uh, an emancipated slave um, uh, carrying as much political weight as a thuggish, uh, simian-like Irishman uh, uh, from the north. Now, these drawings have a very particular political context, but I would argue that there is a very, very interesting thread that goes right back uh, to what's going on in Ireland in the early modern period. I want to turn to my third uh, theme, uh, which is really how the Irish, both Catholics and Protestants, serve as agents of empire at home and abroad and play very active roles in European global expansionism. By, and I've tried to capture it on the map here very badly, but basically by 1660, Irish people are found um, in Britain, especially in London, all over continental Europe, in the French and Danish West Indies, the Portuguese and later Dutch Amazon, Spanish Mexico and Cuba, and then in English settlements in North America, the Caribbean, India and the Mediterranean. They really are all over the early modern world. At sea, they serve in the Royal Navies as pirates and privateers. On land, they join colonial settlements. They forge commercial networks and serve as administrators, soldiers, educators, uh, priests, preachers, labourers, domestic servants. I'm going to focus in um, on uh, uh, who profited from trafficking in human cargoes, uh, servants and slaves. Um, uh, 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 closely associated um, uh, to trading uh, tobacco and sugar because even here uh, we see the Irish all over uh, uh, the empire. Um, we do need to start in London though and this is David Brown's not here but if you haven't read his book Empire and Enterprise it really is a pioneering piece of work and he demonstrates how a group of merchant adventurers or venture capitalists we would call them today used Irish land and Irish labour to fuel their global expansionism uh, including uh, a control of the slave trade. Um, I'm not going to go into the details here, but it was a group of about 20 uh, men led by somebody called Morris Thompson. And very simply, they exchange, exchange slaves for Spanish silver and sugar from the Caribbean. And they then use this silver to buy Indian textiles, which then were used to exchange um, uh, uh, in Africa for more uh, enslaved people. So it's, it's a circular um, uh, global uh, um, uh, initiative. However, uh, Irish engagement with human trafficking had actually begun uh, in the early 17th century uh, with indentured servants. 
Um, it, it basically what happened was the investor covered the cost of the passage and the food and the clothing um, uh, uh, on the plantations in return for seven years of contracted labour. It was 10 years if you were a convict. At the termination of the indenture, masters were legally obliged to provide the person with a small amount of land and, and some uh, money. Now, life for an indentured servant was miserable, but at least they did have some uh, legal rights, even if it was difficult uh, to exercise them. And what you have there in front of you is a, an early indenture, it's from 1684, for Richard uh, and Joseph Swan of Dublin. Um, there aren't very many of these for the earlier period, uh, uh, but it's very interesting to see the way they're printed. It's all very formulaic. Um, we know uh, uh, something about the life of um, uh, the indentured servants from the writings of Richard Ligon, obviously talking at it very much from an Anglo-centric European perspective, but he said, the slaves in their prosperity but sorry, the slaves and their posterity being subject to their masters forever are kept and preserved with greater care than the servants who are theirs but for f five years. Uh, now, whether that was the case or not, that's what Ligon was arguing. Um, and he goes on to describe uh, their uh, basic housing, their clothing and the long, hardworking uh, day. Um, Richard Dunn, in a very important book, it's an old book now, but a very important one, Sugar and Slaves, has, uh, I think, demonstrated clearly that indentured servants were better fed, clothed and housed than enslaved people. But as I say, it was still an extraordinarily uh, uh, difficult uh, 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 environment uh, for them. And we see literally thousands of Irish indentured servants being shipped primarily from Munster, from the uh, 1620s. A third of them are women. A third, and yet nobody has studied them. They're so important uh, for the labour market, um, uh, and as I say, they're completely in invisible. Um, most of the people who go are under the age of 25, uh, and they're coming from the lowest uh, social and economic sector of society, typically uh, semi-skilled or, or unskilled. And then as the sugar rush gains momentum and the demand for labour escalates, this trafficking increases and then of course in the 1650s we have the Cromwellians shipping thousands of Irish Catholics to the sugar colonies in the Caribbean. I do want now to turn to slavery because uh, and they're, they're very different, they're very distinct and they should not be conflated uh, uh, sadly as um, right-wing extremists uh, do in, in the US. Um, the first Irish person to be a slave owner that I have found, it was actually a man called Bernardo O'Brien, um, who established an Irish colony in the Amazon. They're O'Briens from County Clare, and they're working as tobacco and timber merchants in the Amazon during the early decades of the 17th century. This, I mean, quite incredible image is very much of an idealized slave in Brazil. Remember Brazil, more uh, 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 enslaved Africans go to Brazil than anywhere else. Um, but you see here, she's got at her waist um, uh, Indian calico, uh, 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 and this is what was being traded uh, to buy more uh, enslaved people, and a little Dutch pipe. Now what this doesn't do is convey the sheer horror and inhumanity uh, of the slave uh, uh, trade. Um, and 
even though going back to Richard Ligon and his work, I mean, he, he describes very graphically uh, just the brutality and harshness uh, of uh, uh, the system. The other person who talks about it is Sir Hans Sloane from Killyleigh in County Down. Um, uh, everybody knows Sloane because his collections were the founding ones in the British Museum uh, uh, and the Natural History Museum, but also the British Library. He travels to the Caribbean in the 1680s. Remember, he himself was an owner of slaves. Um, his wife had been an heiress to a sugar plantation in Jamaica. And uh, he describes in graphic detail basically the punishments administered uh, to the slaves, um, chopping off a half a foot, uh, the use of these irons uh, around the ankles and, and neck, the vicious beatings, but also how the masters um, or the overseers would have rubbed pepper and salt into wounds or dropped melted wax onto skin. And remember, many of those overseers were men from, from, from Ireland. It's, it's the, the, the Irish are involved at every uh, uh, level. What Sloan can't begin to capture is um, basically what was experienced on the foot of capture in Africa itself. And this is where I think Marcus Redeker's work is very useful. He shows and, and documents uh, just the utter misery of what we would call the Middle Passage or what was called uh, the Middle Passage. Uh, people were uh, uh, kept in, in, in horrible conditions in Africa itself, sometimes for months at a time, and then put on ships where the slave traders would have separated family units um, and used a, a linguistic, ethnic and national division to control the enslaved uh, people who were, of course, subjected to torture uh, and the women to rape. During the 1680s, 20% of enslaved people died on the Middle Passage, and the death rate um, actually decreased to 10% in the early 18th century. Um, I visited the slave market in Zanzibar, I don't know if anybody has, has been there, which was the centre of the slave trade for East Africa. And even on a boiling hot day, your flesh, I mean, it's, it's chilling. Again, we find the Irish all over this. This iconic image is probably well known to uh, it's the drawing of, of the Brooks uh, of Liverpool, uh, carried 600 uh, uh, slaves, and Thomas Clarkson uh, was, uh, sorry, Thomas Clarkson was collecting this material uh, uh, as part of the anti-slavery campaign, but the um, captain of this ship uh, was a man uh, called Clement Noble from Ardmore, uh, a monster man. In, in theory, the Irish uh, uh, weren't supposed to be engaging in the English um, slave trade, but many do, um, uh, for example, Clarkson. We also find uh, large numbers of Irish sailors uh, in uh, uh, these uh, uh, ships. Uh, and of course, the rural economies, especially of Cork, boom as farmers and entrepreneurs exported uh, to the Caribbean uh, barreled uh, butter, uh, salt beef, herrings and other uh, goods. Uh, one of the most successful uh, Irish slave traders uh, actually was uh, engaged uh, uh, in the trade as part of the French Atlantic Empire. Uh, was a man called Antoine Walsh. Is Holly? Holly was around earlier. Yeah, Holly's uh, working on Antoine Walsh as part of her thesis. Um, he was the son of a Dublin merchant who settled in France in the later 17th century. And over the course of his career, he was based in the port of Nantes. Uh, he made 40 slaving trips and shipped over 12,000 uh, enslaved Africans. 
And then with the money that he made, um, he established a, a colony at uh, Saint-Dominique, uh, which is modern day uh, Haiti. You can see in the middle, literally in the middle there. Uh, Haiti um, supplied 70% of all sugar sent to France. Uh, uh, and the Irish were all over the French Atlantic uh, uh, Empire. But we also see them all over the Dutch uh, uh, Empire and the Danish uh, uh, Empire and, of course, the English Empire. Now, the English Empire here is in red, but this is, it's sort of hard to make out because it's really the Leeward Islands uh, where we see uh, most uh, 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 Irish. Uh, uh, they are probably the highest white population of any uh, European empire uh, in the early decades of uh, the 17th century. Um, and we know so much about them because of the censuses published by William Stapleton. He was a Catholic from uh, County Tipperary. And again, it's this imperial counting. Everybody is counted. And what's interesting, it doesn't just say who's black and who's white. It tells you who uh, is uh, uh, Irish. Uh, he does it for the Leeward Islands, but he also does it for uh, uh, Jamaica, uh, where, again, Jamaica, the Irish, were a very significant uh, proportion of the population. And at the end of the 17th century, the governor was a man called William O'Brien, second Earl of Inchy Quinn, uh, who uh, uh, was a very active uh, uh, slave uh, trader. Something like 10% of the slave owners in uh, uh, Jamaica uh, were Irish, but the majority actually uh, were poor. Um, they were the descendants of indentured servants who lived on the uh, marginal areas in the interior of the island. Barbados was also hugely important. 60% uh, of all sugar from the Caribbean to the English uh, 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 or the British Isles came from Barbados. It was also the destination for those Cromwellian uh, transportees. Uh, probably a community of 8,000 Irish uh, uh, lived in Barbados. Now, over time, their whiteness did accord the Irish some advantage even if their poverty rendered them contemptible. I want to say a few words about Montserrat because Montserrat is sort of a volcanic footnote in the Leeward Islands, but it is known as an Irish uh, colony. It's actually described uh, uh, as such. Um, uh, and, and Stapleton uh, was the governor. And we see very quickly how uh, the Irish, um, there's 70% of the population uh, of uh, Montserrat, uh, they amass large fortunes, the Blakes uh, of Galway, for example. Um, and then by the early 18th century, uh, the vast majority of enslaved people uh, are owned by Irish families. Again, all of this is very uh, vividly documented. I want to say a few words on uh, Eastward Enterprises, not just because I came from India yesterday, but because I think it's really important that as we think about empires, we don't just think of the Atlantic. It's hugely important to think about what's going on in uh, particularly India and with the East India Company. And it's not just the East India Company, it's also the Ostend uh, 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 India Company and, and the French Empire in um, uh, India as well. But it's the English East India Company that interests me most, partly because uh, the founding father of Bombay was a man called Gerald Anger. How many of you have walked up Anger Street recently? 
Right. How many of you realise that Angel Street was developed on the back of treasure that was remitted from Bombay in the 1660s and 1670s? You do? Great. At least one person does. Two people do. I mean, most people don't. You look at Angel Street today, you see a 19th century, uh, 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 looks like a 19th century ta I mean, street. Uh, but actually, it was Dublin's uh, first uh, suburb uh, and uh, Gerald Anger, who developed Bombay as an English colony as his grandparents had uh, colonised and planted Ireland. You see this very much, this argument around laboratory uh, working extremely well uh, there. Um, uh, the other thing about, of course, the East India Company, it's not just about colonisation. In fact, colonisation was not a priority for them. It was actually all about trade. And Angel was a hugely effective president of Surat, which is where they were based at this po uh, point. Uh, it was all about pepper, black gold, um, uh, uh, and increasingly uh, uh, textiles. And some of the textiles from this period survive. They're in the Victorian Albert Museum in, in London. This particular wall hanging dates from the 1660s. And I love it because there's the Stuart coat of arms. But you've got this incredible flora and fauna. Your elephant, there's a lovely pineapple here. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's just, some of this stuff is exquisite. And the 1670s are the height of the calico trade, a craze, and our friend Gerald Anger is right in the middle of it, making an absolute fortune for the East India Company and, of course, for himself as well. That's um, his grave in Surat, which is uh, just north of Bombay. Anger dies of dysentery in 1677. And when you look at his funeral monument, it's an Indo-Islamic uh, 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 monument. There's no hint of the fact that he was a very uh, uh, pious, very zealous uh, Protestant. His um, uh, grandfather was the Archbishop of, of Dublin. Anger is so interesting, though, is because he doesn't impose his Protestantism on anyone. If you want to convert, that's great. He was hugely uh, respectful of the indigenous communities and actually uh, did what he could uh, to um, document. And uh, many of the texts that he collected actually survive in, in the British Library. In terms of how he saw himself, though, he was third generation Irish. He'd been born in Ireland, but he saw himself as an Englishman. Now, he saw himself as an Englishman, but his colleagues in the East India Company saw himself as an Irishman. So you constantly are seeing this tension between Englishness and uh, uh, Irishness. But he was also uh, named after uh, uh, Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare. You know, he, there's a very strong sense of Irishness to this man. And over the course of his life, he made very strong connections um, uh, with his family here. And actually, Anger isn't untypical of other Protestants from Ireland who make their fortunes uh, uh, in uh, empire, especially in India. What about the Catholics? Um, again, uh, we see that identity formation is hugely uh, complex and malleable. Some identify themselves as being of the Irish nation. They actually use that language. Um, however, others do everything possible to court Englishness. Uh, they don't compromise their Catholicism, though. Um, interestingly, though, the other European powers are always suspicious of the Irish. So the King of Spain, mm, 
doesn't necessarily want to do business with Irish Catholic merchants because he believes that their loyalty to the House of Stuart in some, somehow is going to compromise their loyalty to Catholicism. So, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting and very complex uh, story. Now, I'm also conscious that I'm running out of time, so I just want to try and bring this together by very quickly uh, looking uh, at my fourth uh, theme, which really is how empires shape the lives and landscapes of those living here in Ireland. Um, first thing to bear in mind is that Catholics and African enslaved people, uh, direct comparisons are made uh, between them uh, by men like Sir William uh, uh, Petty, uh, or by George Barclay, we've just named the library, but Barclay said, if Negro was not Negro, Irishman would be Negro. So these direct comparisons are, are being uh, made. There are references to black slaves in 17th century Ireland. Uh, we see that from baptismal uh, records, but even in this image, you see that the, 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 um, uh, the servant is, is probably um, uh, uh, a young boy who was in the service at Kilkenny Castle. Uh, he was a servant to the Duchess of Ormond uh, and he's known in the records as Scipio. The profits uh, made from tobacco and sugar could prove uh, transformational. Uh, for example, the grants from uh, tobacco duties uh, in the early 18th century allowed for the uh, construction of the West Front of uh, Trinity College Dublin. Um, wealthy planters from the Caribbean uh, purchased country seats across the country. Uh, the Browns of Westport are the best uh, examples, but the Latouches of Rathfarnham uh, would be others. Fanula O'Kane has done amazing uh, uh, work on this. I think historians are coming uh, better to appreciate how products associated with enslaved people, especially sugar and tobacco shaped lives in Ireland. Uh, we see the recovery of large numbers of, of pipes at archeological sites. The truth was that uh, smoking was a very you know, popular pastime by the early decades of the 17th century. And by the later 17th century, Sir William Petty argued or suggested that Irish peasants spent two sevenths of their food budget on tobacco. So we've got widespread use of tobacco but also increasingly sugar and as sugar became cheaper the demand uh, 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 grew and uh, it was used to sweeten especially tea, coffee and chocolate, all imperial uh, uh, beverages. And again this is where I think Susan Flavin's work is so important in providing uh, much needed context and evidence uh, for this. What we don't know is as people you know smoked their pipes and drank their hot chocolate sweetened with sugar is if they understood what had gone into the production of uh, those uh, and that it was done on the uh, basically the the back of indentured sorry enslaved well firstly indentured peoples and then enslaved peoples. So I'm going to conclude uh, by just fast forwarding uh, to today and uh, obviously there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of debate around uh, empire. Uh, in Trinity we've had our own um, legacies of empire research project led by uh, Kieran O'Neill, Patrick Walsh and other uh, colleagues. The president um, offered some very powerful reflections. Uh, we denamed the Barclay Library, you know it's very much a live uh, issue. So. Did Ireland have an empire? Let me try and answer that question. Well, strictly speaking, no. It had empires within empires. Uh, but three things are really, really clear to me. 
The first is that Ireland was a colony, and don't let anybody try and tell you that it wasn't. <laughs> and there might be a few that would try. <laughs> uh, second, people from Ireland, both Catholics and Protestants, actively engage in the empires, not just of the British, but of all of the European powers. They were trans-imperial. Uh, the third thing is I think we have to recognise how engagement with empires, and especially the British Empire, has shaped our history, which is so core uh, to our identity. So whether we like it or not, empire and colonialism has profoundly uh, fashioned us. Uh, and I think it's one of those moments that you want to revisit it, but to do so in a way that actually respects the complexities and does through, uh, uh, as we revisit empire, we need to do it through the eyes and the voices and the experiences of people who, who lived through it. So in other words, it's not a moment to be judgmental here, it's a moment to actually begin to understand. So with that, I'm going to close, Eve, and I, I'm sorry, I, I, I maybe talked for too long. Thank you.